Hey there, I'm Robin, Connections Pastor, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So, today is the last day in this amazing series that we've just been through called Rooted Out of the Book of Romans. Now, for much of this year, we've been listening to, we've been challenged, we've been rebuked, we've been encouraged, we've been strengthened by spending time in this life-giving and world-changing letter that we, of course, call Romans. Now, I'm sure you haven't caught this, but this shows you the depth of this book. God was mentioned 153 times in this letter called Romans. And then what's even sort of more wild to me, the call for us to be something, to be changed in something, the phrase to be, is used 113 times. Paul has cried out again and again, right relationship leads to right thinking. Right thinking can lead to right practice, and right practice, if done in right power, can change the world. That's why Romans is so incredible. I I love how G.I. Packer, that really famous Anglican theologian, summarized Romans like this. If there is one book in the New Testament which links up almost everything in the Bible, it's Romans. Paul brings together and sets out in a very systematic way all the great themes of the Bible. Sin, law, judgment, faith, works, grace, justification, sanctification, that means to become holy, election, the plan of salvation, the work of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, Christian hope, uh, the nature and life of the church, the place of Jewish people and non-Jewish people and the purposes of God, the philosophy of the church and world history and the meaning and message of the Old Testament and the duties of Christian citizenship and principles of personal worship and right living, ethics. And basically he says from that vantage point, given in Romans, the whole landscape of the Bible basically opens up to all of us. So we're coming to the end of this grand letter, and how does it end? More theology, more brain-stretching, controversial, heaven-given truths? Really not overall. Paul ends where we actually always need to end, with God and with people. I mean, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Why did Jesus call Paul in the first place? Why do we exist as a local church? Why does every single church on earth exist? Well, God, people, and relationships. See, Christianity at its core is the reestablishing of relationships between God and us, and then us and each other, and all of creation, as we know, one day is going to be redeemed, a new heavens, a new earth, and that's going to eternally facilitate what was lost in Eden so long ago. We get to walk with God, and walk with each other in the coolness of the day with no issues ever again. All of Romans was written basically to introduce people to relationship with God and then introduce us to each other that have encountered God through Jesus and then basically the letter supports, builds, encourages, and even protects this new family. And so we shouldn't be shocked that at the end of this letter, uh, he ends with what matters. Now, in chapter 16, if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn there. The word greet appears 19 times. There's 33 names mentioned, 26 individuals, uh, two families, and even three specific house churches. All are mentioned. And maybe by the end of this, this might change even how you view Paul. A lot of people have a lot of reactions around Paul, but I love when one person said, 
you don't usually think of Paul normally this way. I mean, we may naturally assume that though he was a great man, his greatness made him a forbidding, overwhelming companion. Reading through Romans and knowing his massive intellect, most of us would probably even feel intimidated if we knew we were going to spend some time with him. Maybe we'd spend time like brushing up on our memory work or wading through part of the Old Testament like the Minor Prophets or wanting to clarify some points of theology. And that would be time well spent. But the fear is unfounded. See, people is a, Paul is an amazing people person. And even what's even more amazing about Paul, this guy writes, is Paul did not determine his friendships on the basis of intellect or, or theological literacy. And what's even more sort of, I'd say, amazing, cool, interesting, is a list that we are going to touch on and you can read later is written about people that he, many of them have never met. Uh, he's never even been to Rome. Remember that. He wants to get there. Most people he mentions are people he met on the journey or they have never met in the first place. And, and I, we take so much for granted. Think about it. There, there's no Twitter. There, there's no TikTok. There's no Instagram. There's no Facebook. There's no email. There's no cell phones. There's no old school phones. There's no direct message. No DMs. There's no phones. No paper as we know it. No big pens. No mass-produced pencils. No global mail system. No printing press. I mean, I think that covers everyone. The point is, everything that we sort of rely on to have relationship and communicate with others, he has none of that, and he still works so incredibly hard at community, which already brings up something for us to consider. If you're a follower of Jesus, I know some of you are not, but if you are, I mean, legitimately, how committed are you to Christian community? Priority or optional? Uh, contributor or consumer? I mean, look at Paul, and then let's just look at our lives. Paul was really busy, worked really hard. He got distracted. He was sick. He even was beat up a few times. He traveled all the time. But the rhythm and, and principle calling to Christian community was never optional with him. I mean, some of you, maybe that's what you need to take home today. A new resounding commitment to Christian community. Well, at the beginning of the end starts like this in Romans 16, 1. I commend you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and give her any help she may need from you, for she's been great help to many people, including me. Okay, let's just pause here. Phoebe, her name means, by the way, pure, light, radiant. She's called sister, servant, saint, a great help. But as we keep going, that word servant is really important for us to look at. It's where we get our word deacon or deaconess from. Now, all of us as Christians are servants. We serve. But this is a title. This is formal, and it's connected, notice, to a local church. So this woman has a formal title or office. She is a deaconess. You see deacons' examples in Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3. Stephen and Philip are deacons. They take care of financial needs. They took care of material needs. They evangelized. They did miracles. They spoke. So Phoebe is a deaconess. And amazingly, this woman is bringing this letter. She has been entrusted with this God-inspired, world-shattering document. So Paul says, welcome her, take care of her. She loves Jesus, she loves the local church, she loves me. And I want you to welcome this church leader formally to your church. 
Uh, Paul continues, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the non-Jews are very grateful for them. And then greet also the church that meets in their house. So you've got this amazing power couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They met Paul in Corinth after they were forced out of Rome because they were Jews. You could read about that story in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 16. They're back now in Rome and they were holding a church in their house. Now, don't just misread this. They're not just really wealthy people, which they probably are, and their house is so big they could hold a local church in it. It's deeper than that. What's being implied here is they are co-lead pastors or leaders in that church community. That phrase, my fellow workers, isn't just sort of a generic phrase. This was used for Mark. This was written and used for Luke, who wrote Acts and Luke. This is written for Timothy. So what you have is like this amazing husband-wife team overseeing this church. And then in verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. So these are relatives of Paul, I suppose, but it's the phrase outstanding among the apostles. Some translations of the Bible read like they're highly regarded by the 12 capital A apostles like Peter, etc., James, John. But that's actually not what's being said here. Uh, Beyond the 12, as we've learned in our spiritual gift series, there are many, many other small A apostles. Uh, They aren't capital A, they don't write scripture, but they are people officially sent. They're missionaries, evangelists, they have authority to lead. And why is this important? Well, because Andronicus is a man, but Junius is a woman. So again, you have both men and women in formal, certain formal church leadership positions in local churches. Now, if you keep reading this passage, Paul says hi to over 20 people and 20 people and families. And we tend to skip over these parts, but I'd love you to take some time to read through it because if you read through it, you suddenly realize like these people are real. We're going to spend eternity with them. They're the backbone of those local churches just like many of us are today. But as you read it, remember, there's so much more going on here. Read the chapter. Paul chooses to live with, to to embrace incredible um, difficult unity among diversity. There's men, there's women, there's slaves, there's free, there's wealthy, there's poor, there's brand new Christians, there's long-term Christians. Some of them loved Jesus before Paul did. Some were relatives, some were Greek, some were Roman, some were Jewish. All sorts of ethnic groups are represented. The point is, Paul is... Paul demonstrates that a local church is called to look like this globally and locally, especially in highly urban multicultural settings. I mean, this is the whole point of the gospel. And it's verse 16 that really brings this home. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now, some of you who are guests today are getting really nervous. You're like, what's kissing got to do with Christianity and something isn't about to take place here that I'm not ready for? Others, you're like... Well, I'm really excited by this verse. No, 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 no. Listen, this is a normal way of greeting 2,000 years ago, like shaking hands or giving someone a hug. And in Latin cultures or French cultures, I grew up in Spanish culture, when you give someone a kiss on the cheek, it's just a normal way of greeting and one or two or three, depending on where you grew up. But this is more than just cultural. It's a public symbol of unity and even acceptance of each other. If you've ever been to a Roman Catholic service before, just before communion, you greet each other with the peace of Christ. In Eastern Orthodox churches, they still kiss each other on the cheek. Both of those sort of liturgical experiences are rooted right here in Romans 16. And though this is normal and a normal cultural expression, it does move us towards motive. One pastor, um, writing from his perspective, I think brings this home. Um, 
and again, it shows a little cultural bias, but the end result is good. He says, more than anything, this practical greeting is difficult to do with people we're at odds with or where our intimacy is strained with them. I can shake the hands of almost anyone, but there's no way I could kiss the cheek of a person I, I barely know. Well, unless, of course, you grew up in Latin culture like I did. But then he said, I'm even less likely to kiss someone I do not respect. Oh, Paul's command would be a powerful motivation for me to keep my relationships clear and close. Hmm. Well, in the middle of greeting and what's up and hello and nice to see you and let's all hug and make sure that everything's okay between each other as much as we can, suddenly, one last time, Paul addresses the dangers of division and warns both about false teachers and even more so about immature Christians. He says in verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. Now that phrase, I urge you, matters. It's been used only two other times in the book of Romans, and at both times they're critical moments. Do you remember this? Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, everything that God's done for you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Whoa. Uh, Romans 15.30, I, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Holy Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. So you've got holy living, God's mercy, intercession. And then he says, again, it's sort of like a flare going up in the sky when you see this phrase, I urge you, uh, keep to our teaching. Don't go to the left and go, don't go to the right. Why? Verse 18, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own, this is an important word, appetites. Smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people in the church. Now, I urge you to guard real unity and real teaching. Now, what is the group he's dealing with? Well, it's sort of two. The word appetites is the clue that we need to understand what's going on here. Now, remember, number one, Paul dealt with a group of false teachers that were teaching you had to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, and also you had to fulfill all the Jewish laws, and then you become a Christian. You have to become fully, religiously, basically Jewish, and accept Jesus, then you're in. They're called Judaizers, and they were teaching Jesus plus works or plus the law equals salvation. And Paul said, false teaching. False teaching. But then, and Pastor Joel flagged this last week, since the word appetites is there, it also gives us a clue that Paul's addressing immature Christians or weak Christians. Now, we didn't extensively go through Romans 14. Uh, Joel touched on it a little bit last week, but I want to go there for a second uh, in a more extended way to help this passage. So if you got your Bible, virtual, physical, just turn over to Romans 14.1. Paul says, listen, accept a person whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, uh, Joel started this conversation last week. Let me keep it going. Weak does not mean uh, what most people think it means. It, it simply means you're not mature enough to grasp all things well. This is not talking about the basics of the Christian faith. In other words, many people who are weak brothers and sisters understand the gospel, go to church regularly, understand the basics of faith, go to connect group. They have been baptized. They use spiritual gifts and disciplines, but they still are, from God's perspective, very weak. And weak has nothing to do with youngness. M many people who are weak are older in churches, not younger. Now, this is not a derogatory term. It just means certain people will be weak in areas of deepest wounds, deepest, their deepest wounds are historical struggles. As a pastor, I see this 
all the time. Uh, as I hang out with people that have really, really messed up in dark histories pre-Jesus, they tend to be much more black and white about everything because they need boundaries to prevent themselves from going back to what they were saved from. But then they take that black and white boundary sort of worldview and they say, we all need to do this or actually you're spiritually mature or not even saved. Here's a great example. It's older, but it, it brings it home. Think about a guy who wasted his youth in the 60s, one writes. More than a decade. LSD, marijuana, free love. Eventually it leads to homelessness. He's got nothing to show and basically frail, part-marked, diseased body. Then like the prodigal son story, he comes to his senses. He repents. He finds complete redemption in Jesus. A community of amazing Christians help him cope with the damage done by his past. He gets steady work. He studies God's word. He grows strong in the Christian faith. And all of this is now ancient history for this guy. Today, his old hippie friends would hardly even recognize him. There's a sparkle of hope in his eyes. He bounces when he walks. He positively beams with the love of Jesus. He's a strong leader in the local church. He's well-liked. He's even deeply respected. Okay, one day, the youth pastor decides that he's going to have some fun, and he organizes a 60s party. Tie-dye t-shirts, be you know, beads, wigs, beards, black light posters, smoke machines. Now, if you're not catching this, you know what's about to happen. The guy says, you can see the unexpected, uh, you know, unexpected moment this poor youth pastor is going to go through. To him, the youth pastor is like, the, this is just like old, antiquated, soft rock. The costumes are just a joke. This is going to be so much fun. Now, now, who's about to become the weaker brother? The teenagers and the youth pastor or the deeply respected leader in the church? It's the deeply respected leader in the church. Because for him, he's going to elevate things from his history and actually make them something that they're not. Um, it's funny, my grandfather, before he died, told me a story. When he became a Christian as a teenager in Vancouver, he re recalls a woman walking into the auditorium with an axe, and she smashed the organ with an axe because she said the devil's music was using organs. <laughs> Because this woman, who probably lived in the late 1800s, probably the organ for her was in an environment that actually was not Christian or holy. Now, it's funny, of course, now people who are pro-organ. Anyway, you, you see the problem? Or it's even what Joel, Joel talked about last week. Uh, lots of us have no issue with alcohol. It's not a struggle for us. For other people, it is a struggle and should not, should be an environment where that is. And so, again, this is this disputable matter stuff. This is about the gray areas of faith. Now, 2,000 years ago, here was what Paul was addressing, uh, Romans 14.2. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. Another man, whose faith is weak, only eats vegetables. So all you vegetarians and vegans, you are all weak in the faith. I said it. No, 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 no. It's all good. Some of you are like, amen, you tell them, go to the keg. No, no, listen. What's happening here, no, seriously, I am joking. I am. What's happening here is 2,000 years ago, Jewish Christians, many of them had become uh, vegetarians, because all the meat that you'd go buy at Whole Foods or Loblaws or Save a Center, wherever you go, was dedicated to idols before it went to market. So they couldn't, in their right mind, where they were at, eat that meat. Here's how one person outlines how church unity gets broken. Imagine a non-Jewish brother returning from the corner store with an armload of meat. And he meets Boaz, a Jewish Christian brother who attends the Roman church. Boaz says, hey, good to see you, grace and peace, friend. What do you got there? Oh, we're going to have such an amazing barbecue tonight. I've got so much meat. I've got New York strip, and I've got T-bone, and the pork. Oh, the pork was such a steal. 
why don't you bring your wife and kids over, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to do some Christian fellowship together. Boaz, immediately in this moment, assumes a grieved expression, leaves without speaking to the guy. The non-Jewish brother is taken aback and then realizes why he's offended. Now he's angry at Boaz because he's judged him. How do you think, you know, that next connect group's going to go? See, this is what Paul says. The man, verse 3, who eats everything must not look, about, look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted them. So Paul sets all of us up and will not allow any of us to get away with disunity. You who are weaker, and by the way, who's weaker here in this story? Boaz is. The, the, he can't in good conscience eat the meat. The other guy's like, I don't care about the idols, it's just meat. So you who are weaker have to admit, I'm the weaker brother here. And that takes humility. And I actually have to be okay with this and grow and get stronger. And then you who are a little bit stronger, don't be so proud and look down in your nose. Why? Because God has accepted all of us. There's an equal footing at the cross. God, did not, God has chosen who's in the church, so you just have to accept them also. This is in verse 4 in chapter 14. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Simply put, we're owned and responsible to Jesus. And so who do you think you are? Again, this is talking about neutral or secondary issues. There are many things in the Bible that are primary and clear. Uh, One person said, keen, weak Christians are prone to swift, uninformed, unloving, ungenerous judgment about things that the risen Jesus just doesn't care about. Both the weak Christian and the strong Christian end up not walking well with Jesus in these moments. See, the hardest thing for us to understand is somewhere between legalism, invented rules that God has not said yes or no to, and licentiousness, I get to live like hell, though I think I'm going to heaven. In the middle somewhere, there is life. Now, as one of your pastors, I need to stop and say, don't misunderstand this. The Bible points out many, many things that you are allowed to say are wrong and you can judge them. We are commanded to worship only God through Jesus alone, period. We, we're not allowed to steal or commit adultery or to change sexuality because of culture. No, we can't do that. Or we are called to connect to church regularly. You can fill in the blanks. There is a right and wrong in many things. This is talking about secondary issues where Christians disagree, the role of spiritual gifts, the mode of baptism, uh, on and on. And there are even neutral things the Bible doesn't even forbid or command. Paul is saying with some forth, stop trying to place yourself in the place of God in other people's lives. Uh, You who are weak, just admit it and stop being judgy. You are strong. Don't be full of contempt. Paul says, don't break these issues. Don't break unity over these issues. Now, back to 16. He, He says, so be careful of false teachers and immature Christians. And then he says, but there's so much good going on in your church. Verse 19 in chapter 16. Everyone has heard about your obedience. I'm so full of joy about you guys. And I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. I want you to know what God says is good. I want you to know your scriptures. And please, 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 please be innocent of evil. Now, this is really important. The phrase innocent of evil is a word picture of a city that had just gone under a horrific attack and siege and survived and made it. And that's the image. He says, we live in a world where we're going to be under siege And we're going to have to literally fight for our innocence because the world, especially social media and the access we have now to so much online, it is a siege mentality to destroy us and form us. And he says, be innocent. 
Your personal holiness, my personal, it matters. Your theological beliefs about core things, they matter. They form the fabric of a local church community. And, and, and Jesus says to us even now, be innocent. Run from evil. Don't flirt with sin. Don't enjoy sin. Uh, you have been under siege. It sometimes feels so overwhelming, but God is sovereign and the siege will end and God will win. That's why he says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen. Someone needs to say amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I mean, this is the grand promise for all Christians. Not only has death and sin been broken and will be eternally removed, Satan's dominion and Satan's influence and presence will be forever broken and removed from the created order. This is one of the greatest themes in all of human and holy history. 1 John 3.18, the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan does not, nor will he ever win. Victory was snatched, snatched from him at Jesus' birth, through Jesus' ministry, through Jesus' death and resurrection. And the end of Revelation is very clear that he and all that have worked with him will be thrown into that everlasting place of separation and he will never have influence again. Okay. So Romans 16. Uh, challenge, uh, commending, unity. Uh, he sends greetings. And if you keep reading, there's local friends and church. It's like this big reunion, sort of verbally here. And then we come to the end. And it's interesting where Paul ends. Paul doesn't end with the church. He doesn't end with a theological checkup. He doesn't even end with amazing people. He ends with hope and praise and, of course, God. Now to him, who's able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for ages Past. Okay, that phrase, underline it, highlight it. This is the one you want to put on Instagram. To, one, to the one who's able to establish you. It reads like this in the original language. To the one who's going to keep propping you up so you never fall down. And by the way, this should not shock us at the end of Romans. I mean, if you've read Romans and accepted what God has said, then you should say, of course he's going to keep me. He predestined me. He called me. He foreknew me. He loved me. When I was dead and disconnected and not looking and spiritually not even alive, he gave me faith. He gave me salvation. He called me out of the grave. He showed me Jesus. Jesus walked in my life. I have the Holy Spirit. He started it. He's going to end it. Nothing can remove you from the love of God. Nothing can remove you from the love of God. Nothing can remove you from the love of God. Like I said in the sermon before, sin can't, sickness can't, mental struggles can't, age can't, nothing can. I love what it says in, in Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's it. I love right there. We always end back up with Jesus because Jesus is the center of the story. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is hope. Christianity is always about and centered around Jesus. All the praise and glory and honors do him and through him given to the Father. I love how Eugene Peterson uh, rendered this section in the message. All of our praises rises to the one who is strong enough to make you strong. Exactly as preached in Jesus Christ, precisely as revealed in the mystery kept secret for so long, but now an open book through the prophetic scriptures. All the nations of the world can now know the truth 
and be brought into obedient belief, carrying out the orders of God, who got all this started down to the very last letter. All our praise is focused through Jesus on the incomparably wise God. Yes. And you say, Amen. So, as we end this series, and wow, what a series it has been. What is the living Jesus, the Lord of all churches, including Sanctus, saying to us this day, this moment, for your personal life and also the life of our church? Well, number one, it's not even my notes, but I'm going to say this. God is going to prop you up. God is going to prop me up. God is going to hold us. I just If there's one thing you get from the book of Romans, it should be this. God accepted you way before you accepted Jesus. The reason why Paul works at all this incredible theology, election, predestination, adoption, it's to show us we didn't begin it, we're not going to sustain it, we're not going to finish it. He started it, he's sustaining it, he's going to finish it. And this should take incredible pressure off to make sure that we're in or to make sure that God loves us. You are never going to be loved more by God than you are loved right now. You're never going to be saved more than you're saved right now. You didn't start this. You're not sustaining this. You're not going to end this. God is going to hold you and prop you up. When everything else doesn't go, he's there. Someone needs to hear this today. Like, this is so important. This this is so incredibly at the core of our identity, who we are. God called you, elected you, saved you. You're his brother. You're Jesus' brother or sister. You're you're friends. It's all done. Walk in who you are. And when you're weak and broken, you say, God, you prop me up because I've got nothing. And he promises to do that. Two, when listening to teaching... And Christian conviction, make sure it doesn't go wrong. Like we need to walk out of Romans and we need to preserve our unity 12 or 15 months from now. We all have to be watching and looking. So when I preach or Sam or Joel or Angela or whoever's preaching, you have to be praying and discerning. Of course you do. When you're listening to a sermon or a podcast or you're watching, scrolling on you know, Instagram or you're listening to someone on TikTok or YouTube or reading a book, you got to be watchful. You don't have to be, by the way, skeptical and argumentative. You need to be watchful. Skepticism is a really bad starting point. I will have the starting point that everything could be dangerous, and I'm just, mm, don't do that. There's a huge difference between doubt and skepticism or watchfulness and skepticism. See, you need to ask the question, is what I'm hearing violating the core of our most holy faith? Is this a primary issue, a secondary issue? And oh, by the way, am I actually the person who has the trouble? Am I the weaker brother here or the weaker sister? I love when one pastor gave us some advice. He said, listen, here's four questions you should ask when you're listening. One, does what I'm hearing agree with Scripture? Now, you've got to talk that through carefully, but like face value, does it? Two, what does, uh, does what I'm hearing honor my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Is it honoring towards Jesus, exalting towards Jesus? Is it? Uh, Three, huge question, huge question. Does what I'm hearing help me become more godly? I mean, I may be really excited what I'm hearing. I might even agree with it. But is it making me more godly? Do I look more like Jesus after I tweet that thing and I think that thing and I act that? Oh, and 
Does what I'm hearing cause me, oh, to think more highly of my fellow Christian believer? Does what I'm hearing cause me to think more highly of my fellow Christian or lower? When you're listening, here's an amazing grid. Primary, secondary, is this uh, an issue? Like, really, what's going on? So God's going to prop you up. God's got you. Your identity has to be rooted in all the amazing work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, we have to make sure that our, our Christian teaching and convictions don't go off the rails and cause disunity, but we have to stand when things are wrong. Uh, think about this. Our world, our lives, our families, our feeds, our stories are full of so many voices these days. And most of them don't speak for heaven. So be watchful. But like I said, in your watchfulness, in your responsibility, don't become jaded. Don't always be ready for a fight. And please don't be nitpicky. Many of us need to admit, because of political views or history or struggle or pain, many of the things that you're riled up about, actually you're just the weaker brother and sister. And it's fine. Just don't raise these issues to a level of unity. Here's another thing to encourage you with. You know, God knows who you are, but he even knows what you do for Jesus, even if other people don't see it or recognize it. Many of us in our dark moments wonder if this is all worth it. Church and serving and relationships with other Christians and trying to forgive people and staying with those people, my goodness, you know, that are in church, but really, and blessing those that curse us. We struggle also because we're not acknowledged. We're not thanked properly all the time. We wonder if all the years have even made a difference. We sacrifice so much and little change seems to take place. But I want to remind you today that God knows everything. He sees everything in the Bible. We've seen it in Romans. He will reward. I mean, we can serve and give and then look for the PR bump now. But actually, real stewardship is about one thing. It's faithfulness, way over fame or anything else. I love when one person reflected on this related to some of the people we read about today. One person said, Phoebe was a unifying force in this local church near Corinth and someone who the Lord called to carry this like monumental letter called Romans. We know nothing else about her other than that. Many, many others are noted for their faithful labors in this passage. Nothing more is known about them from the Bible or even from any other reliable historical documents in the early church. And then there's Priscilla and Aquila. They served with Paul in Corinth, stabilized the church in Ephesus, undoubtedly even did the same in Rome. Yet again, we know nothing about them beyond these three little brief acknowledgments. 27 names are in a list in Romans 16. And they represent countless others who quietly and profoundly enrich the body of Christ. And we don't know anything about them. Here's where we end this series. Don't give up. Don't forget that all the unseen work you do for Jesus will be honored by the one that matters in the end. When everything's passed away, all that will matter is what you've done for Jesus by his spirit with right motive. You're not going to care. I'm not going to care about other people's opinions or getting your due when you're faced with Jesus. All you're going to want to hear is, well done. And so, call on Him in this moment, in this rebuilding moment as a church, in this post-COVID moment, call on Him to keep going and being faithful to the work of Jesus on earth. 
He's the one who's going to prop you up again and again and again. And the church is made up of normal, faithful people. And here's the truth. We're all going to be forgotten. The truth is, we don't like hearing this, most of us here are online, we will be forgotten probably within three or four generations. Our great-great-grandkids will not care about who we were or what we did. They will not even know who we were probably. But that's okay. Because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's not going to forget what you've done for Him. And we don't need to waste our life on being remembered or even by monuments. Uh, Just here's the simple way to end this series. Be a Phoebe. Be an Aquila, a Priscilla. Be an Andronicus. Be be a Junius. Be a person who serves serves faithfully, uses their spiritual gifts, does the work of the kingdom, and realize in the end, when you see Jesus, he's going to reward you for the work you did in this generation of Christians and all the amazing work of God, his election, predestination, the work of Jesus, the present, all of that's going to come to culmination when you see Jesus. Just keep going faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for this incredible letter, this incredible part of your word called Romans. I have a few prayers. One, would you keep some of us going back? Because some of us still need to digest and work through and wrestle through things. Um, Help people not to move on quickly. Lord, for those listening this morning who are on the edge of walking out or giving up, prop them up. (laughs) Prop them up. Help us all to know you're never going to abandon us. Lord, help us as Christians in this highly jaded, skeptical, combative world to actually be wise as we evaluate, but not reactionary. I do pray, actually, quite boldly, that you would show uh, all of us where we act like or are the weaker brother and sister and tell us, really, no, no, you're weak. That's not the church's issue, that's yours. So there can be freedom and a new level of unity, a new level of humility, and a new level of openness. Lord, work that out. That prayer is so easily said, but the implications are massive. Just work it out, Jesus. And lastly, I just pray, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit and empower us as a local church full of everyday people to keep being faithful, not to be seduced by fame or knownness, but just faithfulness so we will get right reward in the end. Empower us to be faithful no matter the results. Faithful over fruit. Faithful over fame. Just faithful. Make us like these people, our spiritual ancestors, for this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you can find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. And last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases. May God bless you and keep you.